Hey, let's start with a Bible reading from Luke chapter 4. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days and at the end he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. But Jesus answered, it's written, man shall not live on bread alone. So the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world and said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. This has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil then led him to Jerusalem and had him stand at the highest point of the temple If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. Well, I hope you had um, a great Christmas, Christmas time. And let me take you back to one of mine. Christmas 1979. 6 a.m. in the morning, or possibly earlier, actually. I can't quite remember, but I'm 11 years old. And I'm downstairs opening what I hope for is the best present that I would ever get in my life or 11 years of life. I'm hoping to get a big track. I'd seen it on TV with a cool American kid playing. It's programmable. And back in 1979, that's a big deal. Big track was like a computer. It was like the best present that a kid can get. I rip off the wrapping paper, and it is. It's a big track. I unbox it, instructions, don't need those, never use those in my life. Stickers, I'll do that later. Lift out the cellophane, break the packaging, there's a big track, okay, how do I get it started? And then I find out, correct batteries were not included. Whoever had sorted out this wonderful gift had got the square battery, but they'd got the one that was too big. And they'd got the cylinder batteries, but they got the ones that were too small. Now, what you need to know about 1979 is this. Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister. People wore a lot of flares, and shops did not open on Christmas Day or Boxing Day. So you got it. I was playing with a dead piece of plastic that couldn't be programmed, couldn't make beep-beep noises, couldn't be made to drive along or fire its super cool laser. It couldn't do any of the things it was supposed to do. Of course, I had a go. I spent two days moving it along the ground, going, going up to my mum, who maybe forgot about batteries, and went, do, 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 shooting over the laser, putting it in different places in the house, imagining what it would have been like had it got there on its own through my very good programming basically the worst two days of my life. I had two days with an amazing but non-functional, dead, boring lump of plastic called Bitrack, because the batteries were not included. 
Sometimes, being a Christian, I think, feels a bit like that. It feels like getting this amazing electronic toy, but you weren't given the correct batteries. And as we begin this new year, before we launch into any of our plans about what we're doing in our families and in our lives, before we start thinking about what we might want to change or the resolutions or our goals or our ambitions are, I want to remind you about the power of prayer as the energizer of the Christian life. And so our series at the beginning of this term is called Pray First. And we really want to just unpack a simple idea of the importance of prayer in our lives as we try to follow Jesus. And also, we've said this year is going to be our year of prayer. So we want this to be a theme that we come back to in different ways through the year, that we look at through everything that we do and the other series that we'll look at on Sunday to unpack the idea of the importance of prayer and how to do it. And my theory is prayer is something that we all probably instinctively think is really important, but the busyness and the complexity and the resourcefulness of our lives means it's often squeezed aside. And rather than praying first, we end up being those people who pray last or sometimes pray never. So we want to remind ourselves to pray first. As we heard in the reading, Jesus begins his earthly ministry with 40 days set aside to pray in the desert, and he also is tempted. He repeats this practice of praying first throughout his ministry, before praying for people who are sick, before teaching the masses, before making important decisions, sometimes getting up very early in the morning, sometimes staying late into the night to pray often withdrawing to solitary places so he could put his focus on praying and talking to God, Jesus modeled the idea of praying first from us. And the account of Jesus preceding his earthly ministry with an extended time of prayer reminds us of the importance of prayer in our lives. And I think it's great to be reminded of things that we believe at the beginning of the year, so we can set into the year, putting them into place. In fact, last year for me, had a number of highlights. So I was thinking about these as inevitably you do as you get towards the end of the year. What are your highlights of the year? And I was privileged to have two great trips last year amongst the other things that I did. And both of them highlighted to me incredible lessons about praying. Uh, One trip was I got to go to Tanzania, and actually World Vision, who I went with, have very kindly made uh, a video from some of the clips. So just to remind you, you might have seen some of these bits, but some of this you haven't been seen before. Let me play you a little clip of my trip to Tanzania last year. Christian Selvaratnam here in Tanzania, here with World Vision and looking forward next week to visiting some local projects, see some of the work that World Vision are doing on the ground with the local communities. We've just had an incredible visit to a groundwater well project. This project's just one year old and we were able to see some of the differences that it's made in people's lives. 
But the first uh, benefit is that the people collecting water typically will travel six kilometres with 10 litres of water, several visits a day just to collect the water that they need for their family. This project means the water they need is available close to hand. This of course means that young girls who were collecting water can now go to school and the headmaster of the local school said it's made a massive difference in the attendance of girls. That girls uh, have the facilities to wash now at their school so they don't need to miss school if they're having their period. They can get their full education benefit. This was an incredible project and it was amazing to see the transformation it's made to that community. What's been amazing about this trip has been seeing a way in which help can be delivered to local communities in such a way that it actually empowers them to do more. All of the projects I've seen have empowered women in the local community, have invested in children, enabling them to uh, go to school and to eat nutritious food, and has left a legacy where not just the project has helped, but those then help the next group of people. And over all these things, I've seen the amazing power of a small amount of help producing a big change. So that was a great trip to Tanzania. And one of the things that struck me uh, as I had a week there meeting uh, in a lot of projects, uh, Christians and uh, church leaders who were involved in that was the importance of prayer in their daily life. Uh, we went on Sunday to a church service that went on for six hours. Halfway through, the bishop stood up and said, uh, thank you for staying for the first half of our service together. The second and more substantial part of the meeting continues after a short um, break. One of the reasons that they had a six-hour service is uh, every time anything happened or they heard from anyone, they prayed for people. And I sat next to one of the pastors, and he said to me, and it was kind of obvious, but he kind of talked it out to me, that uh, we pray for the sick. We pray for everyone who's sick every week, because for some of them, that's all they've got. There's no opportunity for hospital. There's no chance of seeing the doctor. There's no uh, uh, ability for them to receive advanced medical care. If they're fortunate enough, they may be able to queue and see a nurse at a free clinic and they might get some limited health benefit but for most of the people that are here they rely on prayer for their health many of the people were poor and without so anyone who had any opportunity or need anyone that needed to go and travel a distance to go and see a relative um, they were dependent on God to provide some means for them to do it I noticed that the team that were there who were uh, administering some of the uh, resources that were being used for these uh, local projects, they prayed every day that God would guide them to use their resources wisely. And when they hit challenges or obstacles, when they didn't have what they needed in order to do the help they wanted to do, then they would turn their prayers into fasting because they believed, although there was kind of money flowing through an international organization, that actually their greatest resource in what they were doing was God. Uh, I've got some friends that I'm studying with, uh, one from Africa and one from India, and I've, I've seen the same instinctive approach to life in them. Again, they both come from places where they have little. They 
are encumbered by fewer things that they can rely on to fix problems in life. And so they have learned better than us to turn to God to resource and to help some of the things that they're doing. One of my friends, Theo, has planted thousands and thousands of churches. And uh, he, still quite, he still hasn't quite explained to me how he does it. He just tells me that he prays a lot. Um, my other friend, Patrick, uh, in India, uh, runs a church that cares for hundreds and hundreds of orphans, and they feed them every day, and they often run out of resources. They often run out of food. And I said, what, what do you do? And he said, well, we just pray, and God provides. And if the answer doesn't come, we pray and fast, and then God provides. And so um, I saw in Tanzania and, and through these other friends how our brothers and sisters in other countries have a far more vibrant connection to God than us. We are, we are so insulated from turning to God in prayer because of the relative wealth of the life that we live. Uh, the second great experience for me that spoke to me about prayer was uh, traveling around the UK with some of the students that I'm studying with, and we were looking at some of the, the movements through the English history uh, of Christianity. And some of our travels took us up to uh, Durham and then Holy Island in Lindisfarne, uh, and we were learning about St. Cuthbert. Cuthbert was an incredible 7th century monk, and he's credited with a lot of the evangelizing of the north um, of England. He was kind of this missional, scholar, hermit, evangelist, church planter guy. Uh, and while I was traveling uh, on this week, I was reading a book about him, and I was struck again by him being a great man of prayer. Again, a bit like the people in Tanzania, he lived in a world with fewer resources. Probably he had only prayer as the, the means by which he could get something done or express his desire to see um, something happen. Uh, in fact, if you go to Lindisfarne, and I know some of you will have been, and there's a picture on the screen, um, there's uh, a little island near Holy Island. So Holy, it's a, Lindisfarne is an island, and then there's another little island, and it's called St. Cuthbert's Island. And he had like a little dwelling built there. It's, it was no bigger than a shed, probably. And he would go there to pray. And like a, a lot of people of his day uh, kind of did, they kind of felt if, if you made it harder, there was, the pray was, prayer was better. So he wouldn't take a cloak. He wouldn't light a fire. He wouldn't take um, uh, any food or water with him. And the island is, is um, I mean, it looks like it's easy, but it's not. Um, the island's cut off when the tide's in. So when you go over there, you're kind of committed to being there for uh, a number of hours. If you go there you know, at the beginning of the night, then you're going to be there all night and it will be as cold as it gets, and you spend your time praying uh, there. And in fact, while we were there, me and a few uh, mad Americans decided we would go and have a swim um, around um, that island. And I'd read in one of the books, there were legends, that uh, when Cuthbert prayed, the sea otters would come and sit at his feet. Now, that's, that's how they wrote history back in those days. There was sort of a, sort of a layer of fiction layered upon the top of... Uh, facts. But anyway, as we were swimming around St. Cuthbert's Island, we were followed by some sea otters. And I realized, oh, that's probably true. Like, these are clearly like really curious creatures who see us in the water and think, what are the stupid land people doing in our, <laughs> in our water? Let's, let's go and see what they're about. So we saw firsthand some of the things from Cuthbert. Cuthbert 
And Tanzania reminded me of how important it is that we pray as Christians. Now, um, I think it's pointless talking about prayer unless we're practical, and I want today to be really practical. So um, I was thinking, who has some practical advice on prayer? And of course, there are loads of models and ideas. There are loads of books you can read on prayer. But one of my favorites is John Calvin. Uh, he lived in the 16th century, and I think, you know, a lot of good things happened in the 16th century that we can uh, learn from. He was a French lawyer turned reformer of the church. He had a bit of a thing for hats. He wrote a lot of hats. Look at the pictures of John Calvin. You'll notice he's always in a different uh, hat. And in his famous uh, book, The Institutes of Religion, the classic text that you could uh, read about his life and his thoughts on Christianity, he had four rules on prayer that I want to share with you. The first rule was this, to have a heartfelt sense of the reverence for the majesty of God. So he had this idea that praying begins with reverence. Not, not, a, not a terrified fear, not a sort of uh, uh, in the hands of an angry God type fear, but the sort of that holy reverence and awe that when I'm talking to God in prayer, I'm not just chatting to my friend who's the same as me. I'm speaking to the one that made the universe. He wrote this. Uh, words fail to explain how necessary prayer is and how many ways the exercise of prayer is profitable. It is therefore by the benefit of prayer that we reach those riches which are laid up for us with our heavenly Father. So um, now I want you to interact with me. So I've, I've got some actions for you. Okay, so get ready and the actions are going to build. So that I'm going to start you with an easy one. So this idea, this first idea that John Calvin have of prayer, of reverence, I'm going to call it wow. Okay, so we're going to call this one wow. So wow is that when I begin praying, I think, oh, wow, I, I'm talking to God. So um, will you all do this with me? And let's just say together, wow, after three, you ready? One, two, three. Wow. Okay, so that was the first idea from Calvin, that when we pray, we remind ourselves, I'm not just speaking to my friend, I'm speaking to God in heaven, and there is a holy awe and reverence that should grip our hearts. We should remind ourselves, wow, God is big. God is big. That's how people in poverty can pray. They can say, we have little, but our God is rich in resources. That's how people in ancient times could think, we have no idea who lives where and how we might reach them, but our God is awesome. He knows how to do that. The second rule that Calvin had was this, to have a heartfelt sense of trust in the provision of God. Here's what he said. That in asking, we must always truly feel that our wants are seriously considered and that we need all the things that we ask accompanying the prayer with a sincere desire of obtaining them. So he's saying, when we pray, we don't just have a wow that we're talking to God, but we also have an expectation that our God answers prayers. So if you can hold your two hands in front of you, palms upward like you're about to receive a present, 
And let's say after three, I trust, I receive. Okay, after three, one, two, three. I trust, I receive. So, for example, in, when Jesus teaches his disciples how to pray, he teaches them the Lord's Prayer. But in the introduction to them, he says this. When you pray, don't babble on like pagans. They think because of many words they will be heard. Don't be like them because your Father in heaven knows what you need. So when we're praying, we're not just shooting words off into the dark that never return. We're actually talking to a God who can answer our prayers. And we expect God to respond. The third rule was this, to have a heartfelt sense of encouragement in the mercy of God. Calvin said this, divest oneself of all vainglorious thoughts, lay aside all ideas of worth, in short, disguise, discard all self-confidence, and humbly giving God the glory, lest by arrogance anything, however little to oneself, vain pride causes him to turn away his face. So he says, when we come to God, we need to come with a sense of humility and mercy. So you need to get out of your seats for this. Um, so if you can, can you kneel? Okay, we're going to kneel. I like, this is old school prayer, isn't it? Okay, we were over at school, hands together, eyes closed, kneeling down. Yeah. Uh, so that, that's how uh, people used to pray. They used to pray on their knees because they're expressing in their bodies a sense of of humility. So as we're on our knees, let's just take a second, and then after three, I want you to say, have mercy. There's a sense of our humility. One, two, three. Have mercy. Okay, jump up. Well done. So prayer requires and produces trust in God's mercy. Prayer brings us into the presence of God where our shortcomings are exposed. And the new awareness of our insufficiency drives us to seek God even more intensely. And I've found, actually, it's very hard to sustain the wrong attitude in prayer. I can sustain the wrong attitude, believe me. I can carry the wrong attitude through life. But it's very hard to articulate the wrong attitude in prayer. It's very hard to kneel down humbly before God and say, Dear Lord, help me to hate that person. Or to pray, you know, ridiculously selfish prayers like, Lord, make me a billionaire so I'm richer than everyone. I know these, these things kind of don't pass the test of humble prayer. And so prayer is something that's sort of it isn't just that we recognize that we need to come humbly to God, but the act of praying humbles our hearts towards God. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard, the 19th century Danish philosopher, put it like this. He said, the function of prayer is not so much to influence God, but rather to change the nature of one who prays. And so when we come and we're humble before God in our prayer, I think two things are happening. First of all, we're receiving that sense of forgiveness from God, that we are but before God by his mercy 
to us. And secondly, we're remembering that we are loved, that this is our Father in heaven who longs to answer our prayers. And people are different. If you're someone who thinks too little of yourself, you probably ought to emphasize that you're loved and God longs to give you good things. If you're someone who thinks too highly of yourself, you probably should remind yourself more that only by God's mercy will you receive anything. But either way, it sort of aligns us with a proper understanding of God. And Calvin's fourth rule was this, to have a heartfelt sense of renewal in the hope of the gospel. He said this, Notwithstanding our being truly humbled, we should be animated to pray with the sure hope of succeeding. We should have hope. Hope that believes that God is at work and that he is answering our prayers and acting. So I want you to do this um, action. Do you all know what an air grab is? So you could do that, okay? So after three, we're going to do that and we're going to go, yes! Okay? So that's our fourth action. Are you ready? After three. One, two, three. Yes! So prayer goes somewhere, yeah? God can answer our prayers. He can't answer prayers that we never prayed. But when we pray, God can answer our prayers. And it's not that it's praying that makes God do stuff for us any more than switching on a light switch makes a light light up. It's the power of God that does the thing that happens, but praying is the way that God's made it that we can open up that activity. So we're going to engage with this in our tables, and there's some bits of paper and there's some pens um, on your table. And um, we we want each one of these three talks on prayer that we're going to do over the next three weeks to be practical. So the tool, the practical idea that I want to give you for praying today is a really simple one. It's this. Pray first. Our culture is training us to rely on all our other resources before we pray. Like, I remember talking to a neighbor that's now moved, and uh, he was telling me about a difficult situation he was facing, and I said, I'll pray for you. And he went, it's not that bad. Our culture trains us as Western people sometimes to pray last or to pray never. But let's be people who pray first. Let's literally pray about things first. Let's First, go to God as our resource and go, let's see if God wants to intervene in this situation. Does God want to speak to us? Does God want to change us? Does God want to give us a direction? And let's remember Calvin's four ideas. And when you pray in a minute, you could maybe use those as the theme. You could pick one for your prayers. The idea of reverence, the the wow, The, the idea of trust that we can receive something. The idea of mercy, that we can bow and be humble before God. The idea of hope, that we are not disappointed, that God is at work and active. So what I'm going to get you to do is at your tables, I'd love you to uh, start and just write down something that's relevant for your week coming ahead for prayer. It can be for you or someone else. So you might want to go, okay, world news, Australia. Let's pray about that. That's important. Um, or it might be, great, we heard about Rosie Charlotte. 
let's pray for her. Wouldn't it be great to say, yeah, we all prayed for her. In her first week, we prayed for her. It might be for someone you know, a need. It might be something to say thank you for. It might be something that's coming up in your life. So you choose, pick something, and write down something that represents that. And then on our tables, and we probably need to break each table into maybe groups of three just to make this work in terms of time. Swap your card with someone else, and then you pray for that person. You be the one that prays first. Before, we, before that thing happens, before a problem happens, before a need arises, we're going to pray first for that. And if it helps, and it's, uh, it'll be on the screen just to remind you, maybe pick one of those four ways in which we might pray. The sense of wow, trust, mercy, or hope. And then let's make sure we pray for everyone at the table. So I'll, I'll give you a few minutes just to write something down, do that on your own, and then I'll give you a nudge, and then we'll switch and we'll pray for one another in our groups.